up until now. At the beginning of the message, I've been introing the series. Today I'm going to outro the series because this is our last sermon message on the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah, maybe we should just start it again, maybe. I don't know, it's not, let's go back to the start next week, I don't know. But, um, so just to give you the heads up on that, next few weeks we'll be doing various different things over Sunday. So next Sunday will be our Cap Sunday, where we will hear some testimonies from uh, Cap client, testimonies from people in the church that have been helping with Cap. Um, Michelle's short uh, DVD about Cap, I'll preach into God's heart for the poor, and um, that whole thing. Um, Sunday after that, the 20th. We'll have a brilliant guest speaker, a friend of mine called Phil Moore, who's a pastor in Wimbledon, and an um, incredibly gifted guy. I was, I was on training with him years ago. He's so intimidating. He taught himself Hebrew over the summer holidays. Seriously. I mean, I like it. He's just brought out a whole, a whole rank of commentaries. He's writing commentary on the whole Bible, I think. He's, uh, he's younger than me. I mean, he's just like totally intimidating. He's going to come and speak here, which is really cool. And he's, an, he's a brilliant evangelist, and so he's going to be with us in two weeks' time, and just to speak to the church about the gospel, the gospel works, and to build confidence in terms of our own sharing of the gospel. And then hopefully, God willing, he'll be with us in the new year to, um, to, for a, real, a, big, a big Sunday to preach the gospel and pray for the sick. So that's, that's on the 20th of November. Phil will be with us. 27th of November will be our baptisms, um, which we're looking forward to, very excited about. Um, 4th of December, we've got Dan Hayter preaching, which is very exciting. I'm very thrilled about that. Give Dan a, a, a go. Um, we're sure that we'll be um, blasted and blessed um, by what God's put in him. The 11th will be our family carol service here. So that's going to be great. And hopefully this place will be packed and full. We'll probably open up the back rooms and we'll use this bit here. Because these walls come down and, and we use this bit for the, what, the stuff, I guess. And we'll fill this floor area with the, with the chairs and get as many as we can in here for that. And then the 18th will be our last uh, Sunday together before Christmas, and so we'll do some kind of last Sunday before Christmas stuff. And then um, Christmas Day, uh, we're going to join with uh, other local churches at Chalk Farm Baptist. Anyone's around on Christmas Day, which is a Sunday, please, um, if you're around and you want to gather to worship, I went along to Chalk Farm Baptist last Christmas Day last year, and it was such a blessing, such a blessing. It was a brilliant, lovely, beautiful family time, hit just right. And um, so New Life Church will be there, Chalk Farm Baptist and others. So that'll be 25th. And then um, obviously the first new year, um, school won't be open. So we'll probably do something like a walk on Hampstead Heath or something like that. So whoever's around on New Year's Day and wants to join us for that, we'll, 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 details will come out. But something like that, something social involving some coffee at some point, okay, on the 1st. And then back to Norman on the 8th, God willing, okay? So there's a little rundown for you for the coming uh, rest of the half term. And uh, now we're going to preach our last message on the Sermon of the Mount. Okay, so um, Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 27. Not everyone, this is Jesus speaking, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. 
And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus, we go to verse 28 and 29, when Jesus finished his sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribe. Let's pray together, shall we? Not just the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Father, but probably the most uh, hard-hitting words maybe in, in, uh, in the whole New Testament. So please give us real help and grace and mercy to wrestle with these words and uh, appropriate and apply them in a way that pleases you, in a way that Jesus meant, Father, uh, and in a way that will do us good. I pray this in the name of Jesus, for his glory and for our good. Amen. So, so the silence falls about halfway through the passage, right? And <laughs> um, we all know why. Because it's quite devastating. And what I want to do today is we're going to start with verses 21 to 23. Um, and then we're going to, so two halves in 24 onwards. Now, what you've got to realise is, how many of you in your Bibles between verse, verse 20 and verse 21 have a paragraph break and a little heading? Put your hands up if you, if you have that. Okay, you need to understand those little headings are not scripture. You need to understand that. They are, in quotes, helpful, <laughs> but I'm not how sure how helpful they are. But they're help, people are helping, trying to break the thing down. But that's not in the Bible, okay? It's just stuff that people put in to help break the thing down. But I think it's very often unhelpful because it creates a separation between things that there shouldn't be a separation about. So I think in verse 21 to 23, Jesus is still talking about false prophets. Remember last week Simon preached on false prophets and how um, beware of false prophets because um, there are those who come and look like sheep, but they're wolves. And um, really, they're, they're, what they're preaching, it's kind of, it seems, well, it seems kind of Christian, but when you, when you follow it, it doesn't work. It's cranky. Bad, destructive. Um, in fact, what it is, it then goes back to the week before, which is they, they tend to preach, it's the, wide, it's the wide gate, rather than Jesus preaching, it's the narrow gate, okay? So just get that clear, two weeks back, the sermon, Jesus preaching, listen, uh, the, the, what does he say? Here it is, he says, the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it by it are many, but the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Onto the false prophets, they preach really a wide message. Come on, come on. It's, well, come on, come on, that's fine, that's gospel, okay? God, God calls us all to repent. But it's kind of like, you can get in on any ticket, really. Yeah, you know, don't worry about this, don't worry about that. Oh, forget that. Oh, God will wink at that. Oh, God's, God's loving, so he doesn't mind about sin and whatever else. And it's kind of this wide thing, so you walk through and you feel like it's okay because there's loads of other people that are doing the same thing. So you get a kind of sense of comfort in numbers, but Jesus says you're going to destruction. And he said uh, the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. So, so there will be times where you feel lonely. There will be times where you feel, wow, I feel like I'm kind of the only one doing this here. Um, but it leads to life. Okay? And then beware of false prophets. Beware of these people that, 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 that so, preach this message of kind of it's easy and God's really cool and don't worry about that and all of that stuff. <laughs> and then it, Jesus carries on. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. 
On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So this message today is called Three Everyones. Jesus refers to everyone three times. Number one, not everyone. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. See, the Bible says that the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk but power. And so it's not enough just to kind of say the right thing, hallelujah, Lord, Lord, amen. And you can do that and kind of feel like you're getting religious. You know, I said hallelujah, wow. You know, but actually, it's not, it doesn't really, in one sense, potentially doesn't mean anything. Now, if in your heart you're following and knowing the Lord, then of course there are times where you want to just say, hallelujah, God's amazing. But saying those words in and of themselves don't do anything. It's not a magic formula. Saying Lord, Lord doesn't mean you know the Lord as Lord. It can just be words. Jesus is very, very clear. If you love me, you will what? Obey what I command. There it is. You want to know if you love the Lord? I want to break it to you. And it's always hard breaking this to charismatics. So put your seatbelts on. You want to know if you love the Lord? It's not about the warm feelings, guys. Because we love, we love a bit of warm feelings, don't we, as charismatics? You know, we don't mind emotion, us guys. You know, some churches are very suspicious. Of, well, I'm up for a bit of emotion, aren't you? Oh, give me, give, me a, give me burning heart and tears. I'm there. I love it. But ultimately, it's not the proof that I love the Lord. Jesus made it really clear. If you love me, you'll obey what I command. There's a trust that will develop which will lead to obedience. You see, that's the mark. If you know me and you love me, you trust me. And if you trust someone, then you obey them. Very often with our children, when we're trying to get them to obey us, the conversation always comes down to trust. Because they're like, no, I want to do it that way. And I'm saying, do you trust us? And then look at some, one of them in particular will just go, no. <laughs> and it's like, okay, how do we deal with this? But you see, if you, <laughs> if you I don't, I mean, hopefully it's nothing to do with what we've done, but you know, that's the kind of what we have to face. So, if you trust someone, you will, you, will, you, will, you will trust that they know best. You will follow them right into Jesus. Says, if you love me, you do what I command because you really trust me and you really know me. But just saying, Lord, Lord, it's a false confidence. And he goes on and he says this thing which is absolutely terrifying. On that day, on what day? Well, he's just talked about entering the kingdom. So on the day where it's decided who's in the kingdom and who isn't, on the day of judgment, on the day where some will be in and some will be out, we'll look at that in a moment, Jesus says, on that day, something will happen. Jesus is prophesying here. He's saying, on that day, many, so there will be, on the day of judgment, there will be many, and they will say this, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We did many mighty works in your name. And here's the frightening thing. Jesus doesn't say, no, you didn't. Jesus never says, no, you didn't. He just says, I never knew you. I never knew you. What is it to be known by God? Because obviously he knows all things. So what is it to be known by God? Well, there's a little passage in Jeremiah. I'll just read it to you. It's an interesting one in Jeremiah um, chapter 12. It's just a short passage, but God says this. I think it's very, very interesting. God says... Um, No, sorry, it's Jeremiah praying to God. He says, why does the way of the wicked prosper? Just to God, he's looking on at all the wicked people. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do those who are treacherous thrive? 
You ever felt that? Why? You plant them and they take root and they grow and they produce fruit. I mean, they've just got an abundance. And then he says, you're near in their mouth. So even they're talking about the Lord. But you're far from their heart. And then he says this, but you, O Lord, know me. He's saying, you don't really know them, but you know me. Now, what is this? Well, biblically, to know someone is to have an intimate um, encounter with and experience of. It's not just knowledge about. So it says, Adam knew Eve, and she became pregnant. There was an intimate encounter. And that word know is the same word that is used of the Lord of us. And so he says, I never knew you. I I never really, we never really connected. There was never a real connection there. I guess maybe a bit like Judas in the sense that he was, he was around the whole thing and he was doing the work. Well, Judas was sent out with the 12, came back rejoicing, we've healed the sick, we've cast out demons. So he was around Jesus, but he wasn't with Jesus. See? Jesus didn't know him. And it's the same thing here. Jesus is saying, I, I never knew you. And he says, depart from me. I want to ask the question, would Jesus say such a thing? Would, your Je- would the Jesus you know say such a thing? He says, depart from me. I want to say, yes, he absolutely would, because that's what he says here. He would say, depart from me. The false prophets, the people who profess to know so much and work in great power for God and all of this and all of that, but actually in their heart don't know him, Jesus would say to them, depart from me. I want to do something that I don't do often and don't enjoy doing at all, but it's something that probably needs doing which is to just um, draw your attention to some teaching that is really, really popular, especially on the, on the internet and stuff. Um, and we just need, this is not a personal attack on anyone, but I've got to critique a book that's been written that is having a big impact, and it's called Love Wins. And it's basically teaching universalism, which teaches this, that at the end of the day, regardless of whether people come to Christ or not, all will be saved is what it teaches them. But when you get behind that, although it sounds amazing, when you get behind it, what it ends up doing is very, very undermining to the God who is revealed in the Bible, to the gospel, to Christ, the necessary work of Christ on the cross. The whole thing begins to crumble. And I just want to just demonstrate and just show you from a couple of quotes why we need to just be discerning. Okay, So I'm not trying to be critical or say, I'm just wanting to show you something here. So this is um, from, this, from the introduction. This is what he said. After saying that he hoped that his, his book frees you, He says this, Last of all, please understand that nothing in this book hasn't been taught, suggested, or celebrated by many before me. I haven't come up with a radical new teaching that's any kind of departure from what's been said or untold than what's been said an untold number of times. That's the beauty of the historic, orthodox Christian faith. Listen, it's a deep, wide, diverse stream that's been flowing for thousands of years, carrying a staggering variety of voices, perspectives, and experiences. I want to suggest that it's not that. That the the historical orthodox Christian faith is not a wide stream. That it's narrow. Now it sounds, it sounds actually wonderfully attractive because, oh yeah, it's kind of, wideness speaks of richness and that kind of stuff. I totally believe in depth, richness, absolutely. I believe there are many things that can be discussed and spoken about without um, challenging the narrow centrality of the gospel. But he's saying something very different here. He's saying that Really, the whole element, the whole thing is a very, very wide stream. And then he goes on to say, if this book then does nothing more than introduce you to the ancient, ongoing discussion surrounding the resurrected Jesus and all its vibrant, diverse, messy, multi-voice complexity, well, I'll be thrilled. I also want to suggest that it's not an ongoing discussion. 
The Bible writers refer to it in Jude 3 as the faith handed down once for all to the saints. Okay, It's the apostolic deposit, the gospel that has been handed down to the saints once and for all. It's not a discussion, it's a body of doctrine about Jesus Christ. So I'm just going to try and just kind of help you kind of, you say, oh, it sounds, oh, it sounds really great, it sounds amazing and rich, and actually it's really, and then, and then it goes on to basically just ask a load of questions that leave you utterly uh, confused, and then when you're in that pickle, you'll come in with some really unhelpful ideas. One of them is this, listen to how convincing it sounds. Millions have been taught if they don't believe, if they, if they don't accept in the right way, that is, the way the person telling them the gospel does, and they were hit by a car and died later that same day, God would have no choice but to punish them forever in conscious torment in hell. God would, in essence, become a fundamentally different being to them in that moment of death, a different being to them forever. A loving Heavenly Father who will go to extraordinary lengths to have a relationship with them would, in the blink of an eye, become a cruel, mean, vicious tormentor who would ensure they have no escape from an endless future of agony. If there was an earthly father who was like that, we would call the authorities. If there was an actual human dad who was that volatile, we would contact child protection services immediately. If God can switch gears like that, switch entire modes of being that quickly, that raises a thousand questions about whether a being like this could ever be trusted, let alone be good, loving one moment, vicious the next, kind and compassionate, only to become cruel and relentless in the blink of an eye. Does God become somebody totally different the moment you die? That kind of God is simply devastating, psychologically crushing. We can't bear it. No one can. He's got away with words. He's a brilliant writer, an amazing communicator. Um, the problem with it is this. In that passage there, he throws up his idea of what is being um, taught, maybe in a church like this, inaccurately, and then attacks it. And you think, well, fine, you've just thrown up something inaccurate and attacks it. Anyone can do that. We, know, we do not teach, the Bible does not teach that God is loving one minute and becomes vicious the next. The Bible never teaches that God switches gears at death or anything of the sort. The Bible teaches this, that God lovingly knits us together in our mother's womb. Absolutely. God desires that all should repent and come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved so that they might be adopted and become his children and live forever with him in glory. Yes. The Bible also teaches the whole time we are born, we are, from the moment we are born, if you like, we are under the wrath of God. And we need to escape the wrath of God by running to Christ that we might escape the judgment of God at our sin. It is not that God switches at any point. In the same moment, the complexity of the nature of who God is, he burns with love for his creation. He burns with hatred for everything that destroys his creation, which is obviously sin and which we delight to do. And so God has a very complex emotional life, if you want to phrase it like that. It's not that he's switching from this to this. He is burning the whole time with holy hatred at our sin and holy burning love for us. That's the, the, that's the God the Bible describes and the Bible is very clear in Hebrews 9 verse 27 that it is appointed for man to die once and then face judgment. And so that is why we preach the gospel and say you, you need to come to Christ, you need to know the forgiveness of Jesus, you need to be born again. This is very, very serious. It's not that God will suddenly switch it when you die, it's that in, your, in, in the time that you have, God is incredibly patient and holds back his the full extent of his wrath at your sin in the hope that you will come to Christ and that you will find forgiveness. And if, if this isn't true, then the cross becomes a nonsense. Because if God is not allowed to pour out his wrath on sin, then what was happening on the cross? If that's God being vicious, well, what was going on there then? You see, everything begins to crumble and get undermined by this idea. What he has basically done is created his own idea of God, his own idea of love, put it together, and then said, this is, this, this is surely the God of love, 
that we all believed in, a caricature of Rob Bell's. No, it's not. I believe in the God of the love that is revealed in the scripture. He's a God of holy love. A God whose love will not tolerate sin. He will not tolerate sin in the new heavens and the new earth. He's so intolerant of sin that he killed his only son on the cross because someone had to pay for our sin. Do you believe that? But now that he's done that and Jesus has taken our sins in his body and risen from the dead victorious, we can walk free from the judgment and the wrath of God and we can know welcome as children of God hidden in Christ. That's the wonder of the gospel. So I want to say to you, please come to him. He is utterly consistent the whole time. He is completely the full picture of God the whole time. He is not capricious. He does not have moods. He is always utterly burning with love and utterly burning with hatred. That is the God of the Bible. We'll do some Q&A at the end. But there you go. wanted to just say that and just help you wrestle with some of this stuff because I'll tell you more and more, even in churches, there's a lack of confidence in Jesus, in the gospel, in the cross, and people get more and more kind of intimidated by this stuff that sounds so articulate, but it's built on a bad foundation. It's not biblical, so I just need to say that. Okay. Woo, verse 24. Let's preach Jesus of the Bible, um, even if it's uncomfortable. Okay, verse 24. We've got the second everyone. Everyone who hears and does. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. Every time you obey Jesus, you are building something. Every time you obey Jesus, you are building on the rock. You are establishing something with your life that means when the trials and the tests come, and I've got to say it, they will. <laughs> when they come, you will find that you stand. Now, here's, here's what is not true. What you mustn't get into is the way of thinking, which is, will I be strong enough when the tests come? Will I cope when the trials come? That's hypothetical. You can't win that way. If you obey Jesus and build on him, Jesus says, when the storms come, you will stand. That's an amazing promise, isn't it? What a wonderful promise. If you just look to walk in him and do the things he says, which is in Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, it's a perfect example. First of all, be converted. Recognize there's nothing you can do. Get to that place where you say, Jesus, I'm poor in spirit. I need you to save me freely. Receive his grace as a gift that you might be born again. Mourn over your sin. Let him remove you from the center of your universe and put him in the middle. Come to know him. Put your trust in Jesus and you'll be born again in an instant. And out of that place of being filled with the Spirit and a brand new heart, look to apply the message of Jesus in your life. We all stumble in many ways. We all make mistakes. But when you do, pick yourself up or let him pick you up and look to go building on Jesus again. It is messy. Rob Bell's right, okay? He's right in that. It is messy. There's mistakes that we make. We stumble here and there. But keep building on Jesus. And I tell you, when those trials and tests come, they will beat against your life and you'll feel it and you'll know it and you'll think, man, alive, this is fierce. But then when it's gone, guess what? You'll still be there. You will still be there. And that's the bottom line. And I have seen numbers of people that say they're believers and the trials hit and they are, they've gone. And when you manage to track them down or find them, they'll say things like this. This is the phrase that I've heard. It's, how could God have allowed that? Or how could God have done that? Or the God I know wouldn't. And it's like, you're sitting and you're thinking, oh man, sounds like you've created a God in your own image. Sounds like that's what you've done. And really, it's looked like you were building on the rock, but you were building on the sand. You were taking the bits you liked and leaving the bits you didn't like. And it's terrifying. 
is terrifying. The storms will come. The trials and tests will come. Your survival, and no more than that, your thriving is based on one thing. Are you building on the rock? Are you obeying Jesus? Paul in Romans calls it the obedience of faith. It's that the obedience of trust. I spoke about earlier. I trust you, Jesus, so I'll do it. It's really simple. It's really simple. But I want to say this to you guys, because here's the thing. I kind of get two hours with you all up together on a Sunday and meet different ones of you variously here and there. But you know, at the end of the day, I, I don't really know what you get up to. You know, there's so many hours we all have, don't we, where no one's watching us. In terms of humanly speaking, we could be doing anything, couldn't we? I mean, I don't know what you do. I don't know what you do at night. I don't know what you do. I don't know. I don't know what you get up to when no one's looking. I have no idea. So all I can do is plead with you that you take Jesus really seriously. And don't get into that thing of just trying to act the part at church or act the part when others are around because it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a nonsense. There's no point. It's utter nonsense. I think maybe Jesus would prefer if he just got on and just sinned blatantly rather than pretending. So I want to just plead with you, because you haven't got to stand before me. Hallelujah. Oh dear. You've got to stand before him. And, and, and so I just, want to, I just want to do what I can in this time to just try and prepare you for that. And say, build on the rock. Please build on the rock. Build on Jesus. Because there's nothing that can replace obedience. Even with your kids. My kids can come and kiss me and cuddle me and all over me and gifts and that. If they're disobeying me, I'm thinking, I'm sad. Because I'm thinking, you don't, you don't get it. What delights me probably more than anything is when, you know, you can see that your kids have internalized some of the really good values that you've got. And even when they don't even know you're looking, you see them either be compassionate or generous, you know, or just sort of keep their eye out for someone a bit weaker or just put someone else first. And you see them doing it and you think, oh, it's beautiful. Why? You think, in a good sense, they're becoming more like my, in my image. In a good sense, you know, when they pick up the bad stuff, that's, that's the bad thing, isn't it? But when you, well, it's like God looks at us and he loves it when he sees his image being formed in us. He loves it. He loves it when no one else is looking and you just made that phone call to make sure that person's okay. Or you just decide, you know what, that person, they need a bit of extra something and you do that, even to your own cost, or sacrificially. But he sees it because it's just like him, isn't it? Utterly gave himself for us, gave, gave his one and only son so we could be reconciled to him. And what a sacrifice. So when he sees his image in us, it delights him. It delights his heart. And you're building on the rock. And that's the thing that will keep you. And then the third everyone, which is, as Jesus puts it, I'm ending on this one, not because I want to be negative, but because Jesus ended on this one. Everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't do them. So they've heard. It's not that they haven't heard. They've heard, but they don't do them. They might get excited when they hear them and get inspired when they hear them and even say hallelujah or Lord, Lord. But Jesus says they don't do them. They're like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. I want to say this to you. Whatever is not built on Christ will crumble. Whatever is not built on Jesus, it will crumble. This is a very sobering passage. I'm going to kind of wrap up with this one from Hebrews. It says this. Kind of sounds a bit complicated, but it's quite straightforward. The writer to the Hebrews says, make sure you don't refuse him who's speaking, talking about God. And then he says, um, 
At that time, talking about the past, his voice shook the earth, but now he's promised it once more will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. So everything's been shaken, right? And then he says, therefore, let us be grateful we're receiving a kingdom that can't be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Everything that is not of the kingdom of God will be shaken, and only that which is unshaken will remain. And I want to just exhort and plead with you, I guess really as Jesus is doing at the end of his sermon here, and say you need to realise that whatever is not built on Jesus will crumble. It will crumble. It will crumble. It, it won't stand. It won't last. It will, it will, it will at the end, it, it won't count for anything. So I'm not just saying only church meetings count for anything, but I'm, life lived to the glory of God counts. Yeah? Life lived as worship to Jesus, whatever that is, whether you're out riding your motorbike or whatever you're doing. To the glory, life lived to the glory of God as worship is, is a beautiful thing. Okay? So I'm not just saying just churchy stuff. No, no, no. It's much broader, more beautiful than that. Okay? Life lived to his glory. It will stand. But anything that you're building and you know, do you know what? Jesus would not authorize this. Jesus would have a problem with this. Jesus would not be behind this. I tell you, it will crumble and it will be humiliating for you. I just want you, I want you, I want to keep you, I want to keep you from that. It is absolutely God's purpose for you that you build on the rock. Absolutely. And if you've got anything from this Sermon on the Mount series, I want to end by saying, do what Jesus says. It's fine to pray about it. It's fine to think about it. It's fine to talk about it. But do it. And then when you've done it, carry on doing it and make it your habit. And I tell you, you will not regret it. You really want, there is nothing I can look back on that I've done for Jesus. And some of them have been really embarrassing and humiliating. I never regret them. Other things might have gone well, but in my heart, I know, I didn't really do it for him. I just think it's a load of old rubbish. And I did this youth event once. It was a funny thing years ago, back in South London. This big youth event, so much planning went into it. For, I think for his glory. I was, oh, you know, we've got this thing going. We've got all the church on board. We had about 50 people from the church helping badges and ministry ready. And the leader of the church government said, I think Steph is so anointed for youth work. It's going to be amazing. I'm thinking, come on, praise God. Even God's ever even he's saying that. It was like, wow, we bought three prizes. We're going to do a big event, lots of games, preach the gospel. We bought three prizes. Good job, because only three kids turned up. And about 50 people from the church, they were badged up, ready to pray for those who were going to respond to the gospel. Three kids turned up, played a few games, gave them some chocolate, and they went home. You go home and you put your head on your pillow and you're like, what was that about? Do I regret it? Nah. No. What did it for him? Did it for him. Remember when we first started the church? There were times it was really just really hard work. I'd do the trip to the church in my car, two trips there and back, lugging all the gear, lugging it back up to the room, storing it in the room every week, you know, and this might be a hard time, maybe, I don't know, maybe hardly anyone showed up or whatever, and it's just hard and it's that moment, you th- and I remember that moment just feeling demoralised and just a sense of the Holy Spirit saying to me, did you do it for me? I'm thinking, yeah, I'll do this for you for 50 more years. No contest. Never regret doing stuff for Jesus, do you? Because he's worthy. He's worthy. And I want to just say, guys, build on the rock. Build on the rock. He's given himself for you so fully. Give yourself to him. Offer your body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. It's your reasonable act of worship. Anything else, it's unreasonable. Anything else is unreasonable. To not give yourself to Christ is unreasonable. So give yourself to Christ. Okay. Sermon on the Mount is finished. Any questions? (laughs) Steph.
Yep. very very important question so what if you feel like you know I'm just going to repeat this for the online thing if you feel I, I haven't really had deep encounter experience with Jesus you know and, and if the word no means to have a deep experience then what does that mean am I a Christian or aren't I let's just clarify I'm not saying that you have to have fireworks to be a Christian which is the charismatic people isn't it Do you know what I mean I've not fizzed and popped you know am I saved yeah I'm not saying that at all People definitely would encounter Jesus in very, very different ways, some of, the, some of which would be very, very understated in a sense and quiet. Others would be fizzing and popping, okay? So it's not, it's not about the display in that sense. But I think you'd have to say, if, if you said, um, if you were to say, I'm born again, but really I just have a mental assent, I just believe some facts in my mind and that's it, I think you would have to seriously question whether someone could be genuinely born again and that be the case. Because the Bible says you get a new heart in the sense that your whole centre changes. So your whole motivation now, rather than being for you or for any other created thing, your boyfriend, girlfriend, spouse, parents, ambition, job, now it's for Jesus. I've changed. I'm not what I was. So whether there's an amazing experience in the sense of like dramatic thing or not, when you receive Christ into your life, he comes and indwells you by your spirit and changes you as a fundamentally in your moral center. The things you used to hate or were disinterested in, you now love. If you've not experienced that, I have to question whether you're a Christian. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think in terms, of, in terms of, for someone to say, if this is now obvious to me, something's happened. So I think naturally, I think we're in a fog. When something, something oh, yeah, of course Jesus is the way. There's, something's happened there. God's been at work there. And I think baptism is important. I would say baptism is important. I don't believe in baptismal regeneration. So I'm not saying I believe you become a Christian when you are baptized. I believe you, come a, you be, are baptized to demonstrate what God has done in you being born again. So it's very important, baptism. It really is. It's not an optional extra. Amanda. Thanks, John.
So comment down. Someone else here has read the Rob Bell book, Love Wins, and is saying it's probably a reaction to just kind of hardcore American Christian fundamentalism with all of its unattractive elements, and it's just bringing a more nuanced sense, and maybe it's saying, you know, maybe we put standards on people. You have to do this and do this to become a Christian, whereas for, for example, one woman in the Bible is just washing the feet with her hair, etc., etc. Let me say a few things on that just quickly. I think it is absolutely a reaction to that, but I think most reactions prove themselves to be unwise. Because if you just gave this to someone who had a blank sheet and said, there you go, read that, you're going to just utterly confuse someone. But I think the reason why so many people are finding it a relief is because it is a bit of a tonic to what they have experienced. So I get that, but you cannot build on something like that. I think it ultimately undermines the gospel in as much or even perhaps more as the really harsh fundamentalist does. Now, in terms of coming to faith in Christ, of course we all, ex in a sense, express it differently. So, you know, one, one person washes his feet with her hair, da, 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 you know, and different expressions of our love and devotion to Jesus. Absolutely. For some of you, you know, you, do, you, you know, you just, I don't know, it could be that you've chosen a particular vocation in order to express your love for Christ. You've chosen to go into a particular vocation because Jesus has changed your life and you therefore want to express that in the vocation that you do. And you've maybe even done years of study to do that because you're just carrying that in your heart. Others of you, you know, you might have kind of decided, no, but with, with my voluntary time, I'm going to help out a certain thing because I love Christ. If praying a prayer does not make you a Christian, and I absolutely believe that, praying a prayer does not make you a Christian. Repenting and putting your trust in Christ does. Yeah, so there's some agreement there, definitely. Anything else? Well, we're flowing, aren't we? Okay, Claire. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so it seems to imply that people were doing signs and wonders in his name, and yet not believers, and Jesus never says, no, you weren't. Claire doesn't get that, nor does Seth. <laughs> so it's one of those moments where I'm letting it hang there because it's there. Uh, Dave, go on. Is it anything to do with there being power in the name of Jesus because simply in his name things can be effective? It may well be that, Dave. I mean, there were, there were others that were casting out demons that weren't part of the disciples, weren't they? And the disciples said, should we stop them? And Jesus said, no, let them carry on if they're not against us, they're for us. You know, it's kind of, I don't know. I don't know. It could well be that, Dave. That, that, I've, I've probably not heard a better explanation, so that could be it. But it's, it's sitting there, and I think sometimes it's actually good to let things sit there just because... Sometimes we feel safer when we've got everything tied up, but actually it's not clever. It's not clever because I don't think everything is always tied up. And I think what this does is it makes us just stop in our tracks, particularly those in a charismatic church that believe in signs and wonders and all of that, and just say, I must not put my confidence in that. I must put my confidence in Christ. Yeah? That's what it helps us to do. So I think that's why it's helpful to kind of it, that's what it does for us, even though I can't explain the whole thing. Tom? I guess my question is, um, yeah, Steve? Yeah. Um, just thinking back to last week when we were having a bit of prophets and evangelists getting around the prophets, and they said, we're recognised them by their fruit, and then we come back here, mm. and we see that actually they're, they're prophesying, they're casting out demons, mm. and they're doing mighty works. Yeah. How do you recognise them by their fruit? That's yeah. that's one. Yeah. And then also... 
they've done here in that and this by uh, working in Nordic literature, you unpack that a little bit. Okay. What that looks like yeah. and their approach, I guess, where it connects to what you're really talking about. Okay. Very good. Okay. That's fine. That's fine. First bit, um, which was, okay, so isn't casting out demons and doing mighty works, isn't that fruit then? Because Jesus said you recognize them by the fruit. These people are doing this. Isn't that fruit? But they're the bad guys. How does this work? I think fruit is a lot broader than that biblically. Um, some people would say fruit is only things like fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, Galatians 5.22. Some people say that is fruit. Signs and wonders and stuff, that's, that's, not really, that's not really fruit. I disagree with that, because in John 15, Jesus is, the whole context is fruitfulness, and part of it is, is that you will do the works I've done. And in John, the word works often means signs and wonders. So I, th I think I would say this, that there are people who walk in power and seem to displace something of what might be seen in some category legitimately as fruit, but there will be significant other areas lacking in fruit, and so don't just be taken in by that. So either doctrinally, in terms of the truth of what they're teaching, or character. So don't, and charismatics, believe me, can be so taken in by a miracle, can't we? We love it. Some forms of miracle, and we're like, oh, I'll go to this seminar. And be more discerning than that. Ask the questions, what are they like as people? What are they teaching? So that's the best way I can answer it, that's okay. The lawlessness thing, this is, obviously, at this point, Jesus is mostly teaching Jews, and um, it's a, it, the application is across the board, but you've got to understand, for a Jewish mind, what is sin is law-breaking. That's what sin is. Now, because we don't have the Jewish history with the law in that sense, we just think of it as bad stuff. But ultimately, what is sin? It's breaking God's law. So Jesus is basically saying, you're not doing my Father's will, which is, you know, fulfilling his desire as expressed in his words, you're, break, you're just being utterly lawless. You're not submitted to his authority at all. So one more. Please. slightly dubious element with this is obviously the Bible talks about false signs and wonders. We know those things happen. But this is a little bit dubious in the sense that they're doing them in his name. That's what just makes it a slightly different thing from what we would see normally around the world with occult stuff. Yeah? Um, I don't know, to be honest with you. I don't know. Okay, we're done. I know there's more questions, but I want to give mercy to those of you who don't want to hear any more questions. You know, it's like <laughs> <laughs> so some of you are highly stimulated. Others of you are thinking, I just want to sing and break bread. I totally get that. So that's what we're going to do.